as you can see, though we're doing a topical message, Sanctity of Life, uh, the Lord has still orchestrated it so that we are kind of in the text. Uh, this will not be an exegetical message, though, as you're well used to by now. This will be topical. Um, so you'll notice that we don't spend too much time in Genesis 4, but it does factor into our topic this morning, and that is the sanctity of life, what God thinks about life. And you'll notice also that it's very difficult to isolate this subject. It's very difficult to find passages that speak only to the sanctity of life because it really is at the center of all biblical scripture. It is at the center of God's heart. It is why he sent his son to die for us, to restore life to us. It is our hope for the future to be resurrected into life. And it is also our nature to destroy life, whereas it is God's nature to protect life. So as we sit here this morning, and I'm almost certain that all of us will agree on this subject of life being sanctified by God, it is not because it comes from within us to respect the sanctity of life, but because we have been changed by God. And so that is our hope for all who we encounter on this topic, not to change their minds politically, not to change their minds about biology, but to change their minds about Christ. Because that's the only hope we had, and it's the only hope they have. So with that, again, I'm giving you the main point up front. I kind of like doing this. I think it gets you guys thinking, my thoughts after me, which are hopefully God's thoughts after him, but it keeps us all on the same page. So my main point this morning is while the earth promotes death as a solution to its perceived problems, God offers life as a means to escape the world's death cult. So we start with this statement that might seem pro provocative to some, but question, why do you think it's provocative? God is pro-life. God created life. God has a purpose for life. Now God is pro-life, small p. That might seem less important than big P pro-life, but it's actually broader. It's not just the abortion debate where God is pro-life, but God is pro-life in absolutely every aspect. God protects life. God created it for a purpose. And that is our first subject that we are looking at is the creation of life. Now we've spent three months looking at the first few chapters of Genesis. So I'm not going to belabor this, but I'll just remind you of a few points. God created man in his image. God has a very special design for human life. It was unlike the animals that God created. It is unlike plant life. It is absolutely above everything else he has ever created. Human life was designated for such a special purpose that he designed it after himself. He gave it his own image. And in giving it his own image, he owns it absolutely and certainly. We are created in his image because we belong to him. He blessed man and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. This was the very first command he gave to man. And we see that this is the command 
that man in his sinful state is dead set against. The first sin was essentially nothing more than a suicide pact. The second sin recorded by mankind is murder, fratricide. Mankind is dead set against his own destruction because he has listened to the lies of the serpent. And the serpent is dead set against man's destruction. So when we agree with the world that uses death as a solution, we are agreeing with that solution that has come from the mouth of the serpent. We rather want to agree, as Job does, with the mind of God. And Job is using this statement in an argument against his friends, and he's challenging them to argue. He's challenging them to say that God thinks anything different. He says, the spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job is sustained by the breath of life. God does not begin life and then leave it. God sustains it for every moment. God is intimately concerned with the life of each person, so much that each breath you take subconsciously, he has consciously given you. In Psalm 139, we see what David has to say about the life that God gave him. He says, for you were formed, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. God has a plan for us. When as yet there was not one of them. For David, and by extent for all of us, before our lives began, God knew us. God planned us. God thought of us. God planned our lives for us. And Paul repeats this when he says that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Not only before our birth, but before he created a single thing, he knew us, he wanted us, and he planned for us. God is the best family planner. God has ordained life, and God protects it while we destroy it. In Genesis 2, we saw God tell Adam the consequences of sin, that sin, sin will bring in death. He is giving him probably the most important instruction that he could, was saying, obedient, be obedient, do not separate yourself from me. And why not separate ourselves from God? Among many reasons would be what Job said. God is the sustainer of our lives. He gives us our breath. 
Separation from him is not only physical death, but spiritual death. God says that in the day that Adam sins, he will surely die. In other words, to choose sin is to choose death. To choose sin is not to choose life. We might think of what Moses said to Israel, where he says, I put before you life and death. Or what Joshua says, choose now whom you will serve. As for me and my family, I will serve the Lord. Joshua chose life. In Genesis 3.9, we see that the consequences of man's sin was that he would return to the dust. And Romans 6.23 tells us why. Because the wages of sin is death. Choosing contrary to the will of God brings death. If the will of God is life itself, this follows naturally, that choosing against his will is death. But that is not the end of the story because though life was given freely, it was purchased at a high cost. So that the free gift of God is eternal life. Life that cannot be taken. Life that cannot be squelched. Life that cannot be stolen or chosen to be given up. This is why our eternal security is so important as well. Because God does not give partial life. When he restores, he restores absolutely, perfectly, and permanently. In Romans 5.8, just one chapter earlier, Paul says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was the cost that was paid, and it was paid before we were his brothers. Before we were purchased by his blood, he died. Before we were restored to spiritual life in the body of Christ, he had to die so that we wouldn't have to. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God protects life. God dies so that we can live. So this morning, though our focus in the nation is pro-life on the abortion debate, our focus in scripture is God's heart towards all life. So we can all agree with our late president when he says that we cannot diminish the value of one category of human life, the unborn, without diminishing the value of all human life. And there is no cause more important. So we're not going to dive into political debates this morning. We're not diving into biological debates. Because the debate is settled in the word of God. Biological debates may have their place, but you know, during the Holocaust, it was argued that invalid humans and Jews were not fully human. And they were massacred 
and mass. The same argument happens today, that unborn children are not fully human. So there's no problem killing them. Scientists choose what they believe. Data has to be interpreted. God gives the final word. So we look at things starting from a biblical perspective. Then no matter what situation we look at, scientists can't skew the facts. Because we have the mind of Christ in the word of God. My picture has disappeared. God protects life. We're going to look at a few different ways that God protects life. First, again, the first death in scripture was a suicide. In fact, it was a double suicide. In Genesis 3.6, Eve, knowing the consequence of sin, chooses to eat of the fruit that was forbidden to her. And not only does she choose death, but she shares death. She gives it to her husband, and he as well chooses to eat. Now Eve was deceived, but the man did this knowingly. The man had not been deceived by the serpent. I believe it's Second Timothy that gives us that bit of information. So in Genesis 3.19, we see that consequence declared, that he would return to the dust. But I want to pull one more thing out of this text from Genesis 3, that man was driven out of the garden. You'll remember that the purpose for driving man out of the garden was that so he would not eat from the tree of life. That did not mean so that man would absolutely bear his consequence of sin, but so that he would not be stuck in his consequence of sin, so that he wouldn't have life in death confirmed, but rather have the opportunity that through the death of Christ he might be saved, that he might enter into resurrection life and not immortality in his fallen nature. So God protects life by banishing Adam and Eve from the garden where they could further destroy their lives. God protects life. And in the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see the first murder, which is where we currently are in the text of Genesis. And we see Cain's flippant attitude about life. He does not agree with God about the sanctity of human life. But instead, he kills his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were not. He kills his brother, and then when God comes to question him so that he might have the opportunity even to repent, Cain's response is, what is it to me? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, particularly pungent in the text that we're going to look at a bit next week is that God required a blood sacrifice to cover sin. And it's as if Cain said, you want blood? I'll give you blood. This should chill us to the bones. 
This is why I said last week that Cain is probably one of the most heinous characters in all of Scripture. And you know, he was only the second generation from creation. Sin's effect is fast. Sin's effect is pervasive. And sin's effect spreads to everyone. In Genesis 4.23, only seven generations from Cain, we see one of his descendants writing the first poem by an unbeliever. And that poem celebrates death. Lamech said to his wives, notice first polygamy, Ada and Zillah, he says, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. He has chosen to pay back death for a wound. His means of solving his problem was death. And it gets worse. In Genesis 6, we see that this sin spread so pervasively over the entire earth that God had to do something about it. Just like the days of the tribulation will be that God will have to shorten the days so that life will not extinguish itself. So probably the issue was the same before the flood. That man, despite God's efforts to protect it, was killing itself off. Was corrupting itself so thoroughly that even the line of Adam to Christ was being threatened. In Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So if we want God's heart about these issues, we have to look at how he responds to these issues. Yes, he reacts in righteous anger, but he reacts in righteous anger to protect life. You'll remember that a few weeks ago we talked about God's divine institutions. Institutions that he built into the very framework of society. These institutions were created to protect life. Notice that he put in means of protecting life before life was even threatened. Before life was even in danger, God was already protecting it. In the last couple of years, some of the news stories that have broken my heart most thoroughly have been the incredibly high rates of suicide, where we lock people in their homes and pay them money to stay there so that they question their worth, they question their value. They're not able to be out working. Man was created to work. Man was created to find satisfaction and meaning in working. This is one of the reasons why we as Christians love the labor of the Lord. We love to be about the Lord's business. 
because he created us to be busy. He created us not to be idle. In a, another Bible study this week, someone brought up David, what he did when he was idle, when he stayed back from war. And he fell into sin because his idle eyes were wandering. God created us for labor so that we would have purpose, so that we would have meaning, so that we would have value. He created the institution of marriage to proliferate mankind. We saw that woman's birth was increased after the fall, increased probably because of death, so that man, again, would not die out, but that man would populate the earth despite death rates. And intimately connected with marriage is the divine institution of family. Notice both of these institutions were directly attacked in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. That the first division we find is between Adam and Eve, distrust for one another after they fell. Once God comes onto the scene, of course there is disunity between them and God as well. But sin drove a wedge between Adam and Eve so that they had to cover themselves from one another. And with Cain and Abel, we see again the breakdown of family where brother kills brother. But family was created to pass down the word of God, the love of God, the care of God from one generation to the next. Family was created to be a unit. In fact, rather than the individual, the family was created to be the core unit of society. So it shouldn't surprise us that the world, which again is dead set against life, is dead set against family. Removing children from their parents and giving them to the state to choose how they're educated. Promoting, not just permitting, which is horrible enough, but promoting the massacre of unborn children. Promoting doctor-assisted suicides. Promoting the homosexual agenda, which breaks down the family unit at its very core. You see, things got so bad before the fall that God had to wipe out the entire population. And when he restored that population through Noah, he installed two more divine institutions. He said, from this point forward, society will be structured on two more regulations. And one would seem paradoxical if it came from the mind of man. But this came from the mind of God. God instilled, installed capital punishment as a means of protecting life. The world says this is backwards. What the world is saying is that 
they are in opposition to God's statement. So our argument doesn't have to be why we are right and why they are wrong, but whether or not we choose to listen to God or whether or not we choose to listen to them. Now again, this is a very controversial topic. So we're not looking for opinions on this. We're looking for what God has to say about this. And in Genesis 9, 6, God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God's plan for sustaining the multiplication of mankind is to put into the fabric of society a means of eradicating what threatens life. And what threatens life is man's murderous sin nature. That when a sin nature becomes so out of control that one cannot keep themselves from murder, there is but one solution. To protect the lives of the innocent at the expense of the life of the guilty. This should break our hearts that it has to come to this. So after the flood, God installs the divine institution of civil government. Government, we might say, is a necessary evil. Government was put in place to protect life. So a government which not only permits but promotes death is opposed to its very purpose, is opposed to the very reason God created it. God did create government. God put a fail-safe into the institution of government. He had to instruct man over about 500 years that they needed this fail-safe. But God put a fail-safe of nationalism into this institution of government so that when one government becomes so corrupt and it begins to threaten life rather than protect it, one can escape. We might look at the history of our own nation that when it became dangerous for Protestants to live under the Holy Roman Empire, we had a plot of land to escape to. Granted, the Puritans had their own issues of, of uh, some fairly brutal legalism. But they were able to go create an independent nation. Rather than the entire world being spoiled under one government, God has divinely instituted that there be nations with distinct national borders, with distinct laws, with distinct means of protecting life. And God raises up those nations and he brings them down. 
So we ought to be praying for our political leaders. We ought to be praying for our nation. That our nation begins to have the heart of God about life and begins to protect life. To protect its own very existence, if nothing else. So we look at the example of Israel. We look at how God carved them out from the nations after Babel, where Nimrod's one-world government began to threaten life. In Deuteronomy 7.6, Moses writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. God selected an individual with the purpose of making him a nation. God selected Abraham, promised him a family, and then promised him that that family would become a nation. He isolated that nation from other nations to protect life. He brought them out of the land of Canaan when their life was threatened because of their mistreatings of those around them. We read either this week or last week, I can't remember, in Genesis, the story of the rape of Dinah, where Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves to trick and massacre a number of people in a surrounding tribe that were responsible for the rape of their sister. They chose to take vengeance into their own hands and the lives of the rest of their tribe was in danger because of the violence and trickery. So God had to protect them by bringing them down into Egypt and when their lives began to be threatened in Egypt, he brought them back out. And he brought them back out after the sins of the Amorites were filled. After another nation which they were going into displace had become so corrupt that it was time for God to bring that nation down. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes in a, quite a lengthy list of reasons for the Mosaic Law. One of them was so that they would be a distinct people. He says, the Jews were to be distinct from all other people in a variety of ways, such as their worship habits, their eating habits, their sexual habits, their clothing habits, and even the way they cut their beards. And we might ask, why does God keep them so odd? It's so that the nations that came to them would not want to assimilate to them. But that does not keep the threat of Israel trying to assimilate the nations around them. Israel was supposed to be a distinct nation in its customs, in its celebrations, in its family habits, so that they would stand out, so that they would remain distinct. More than 4,000 years of history, and they still remain a distinct people. Tell me, what are some of the customs of the Canaanites? What are some of the customs of the Moabites? 
What are some of the customs of the Hittites? Historians may know, but you can go to a suburb of New York and find out what the customs of the Jews are. They are still a thriving culture because God created them to be distinct from other cultures. And God instilled the sanctity of life into their very law code, into the very fabric of their society. So that he might bring about what he says in Exodus 19. He says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is carving them out for a special purpose. In Leviticus chapters 18 and 20, we see the cultures that they were put among, that once God had carved them out, once God had made them a nation, once he had given them a law code that made them distinct from the nations around them, he warned them as they went into these cultures not to mix with them, not to take in their sin and make it their own. So in Leviticus 18, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Don't be like them. Be as I am instructing you. Have the mind of God about your customs and habits. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall walk in mine. And so in Leviticus 18, we see a large swath of scripture dedicated to these sexual practices, the marriage and the family practices of Israel. And then we see in only half a verse, wedged between everything else, a command not to commit child sacrifice like the surrounding nations. And we see connected with that within the same grammatical structure, a command not to blaspheme the Lord. These are all intimately woven together. They are not separable. And then after that, Leviticus 22 and Leviticus 23 is the Lord's command not to commit sodomy and not to commit bestiality. What we learn from that is this is what the cultures that Israel was displacing were practicing. Sexual liberty, child sacrifice, blasphemy, sodomy, bestiality. There are countless other sins God could have listed. These were the ones he was specifically telling them, do not engage in these sins because these are the sins that are about to be all around you. They were to maintain God's righteousness in a contrary and contradictory culture. So that in Leviticus 18.24, God says, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. 
for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. God brought down those nations because they had so thoroughly corrupted themselves. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Those who practice any of these foreign sins within Israel will be cast out as if they were not Israel. Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you, so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. He's signing his authority to this statement. He's reminding them of their guidepost. They are not their own gods, as Adam and Eve so thought. And it, they want to stay in the land that God prepared for them and not be cast out of the land God prepared for them as he did with Adam and Eve. They are to respect the sanctity of life. Moses doubles down on his statements against child sacrifice. It's as if he gives us a table of contents in chapter 18, and then he elaborates later on. In chapter 20, he writes, You shall also say to the sons of Israel that any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. Because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch, so as to defile my sanctuary and to, perform, to profane my holy name. A breakdown of marriage, a breakdown of family will be resolved by God cutting him off from the people of Israel so as to protect the nation. And the penalty is capital punishment. Stoning is the same penalty as blasphemy. Again, these are intimately connected. In Leviticus 20, verse 4, he continues and says, If the people of the land, however, so this is those not directly involved in the sin, if the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. If they fail to purge the sin from within them, they will also be guilty. They will also come under the judgment of God. Now, Israel is a unique nation. Israel has a law code drawn by God himself. Israel's law code shows the heart of God, the heart of God towards life, the heart of God towards his own holiness towards the people after his own name. They ought to be holy among the other nations so as to be a guiding light to the other nations, not to mix so as to become like them. This is an artist rendering 
of the child sacrifice to Moloch. You know, this is still practiced today. Moloch is still worshipped in parts of Iraq. Moloch is still worshipped, though not by name, in many parts of the world. Because of the position of this commandment among sexual sins, it is held by many that Moloch's purpose, Moloch's special deity, was as a fertility god, or perhaps a god of sexual liberty. So we see child sacrifice performed for the sake of sexual liberty, killing a child so that one can practice whatever sexuality they prefer. Taking the lives of innocent children so that adults can be as lawless as they would like. So when the world says that capital punishment is backwards, what they are saying is it is backwards to kill the guilty party and to protect the innocent party. You know, again, this is probably a very controversial statement, but I think we would protect a lot of lives of women and children if rape and incest received capital punishment in this nation. Because capital punishment was given to Israel for a lot of lesser sins. And do you know how often it's recorded that someone was put to death? Hardly ever. Now granted, they practiced these sins and didn't punish each other for these sins, and so God punished them as a nation, just as we saw in Leviticus 18. But do you know that talking back to your parents was punishable by death in Israel? How often do you think that happened? Probably not as often as it happens today in America. Now, I'm not saying that we as Americans should bring in a death penalty for children who talk back to their parents. But how about if there is really the question of life? How do we protect it? Rather than killing innocent children, perhaps we should take a good hard look at those who have made those children victims. In Psalm 106, we see recorded by David the sins of Israel. That just as God told them not to do this, what do they do? He says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They did not protect life. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. 
So in Deuteronomy 29, we see predicted, even from the very beginning of Israel's inception as a nation, that God foresaw this sin, this corruption, and the necessity to expel them from the land. But that does not change the fact that he promised them an eternal inheritance in the land, that they would be punished, they would be sanctified through fire, but they would be brought back. But here in Deuteronomy 29, Moses records, now the generations to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes up from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive. And no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Why is the nation which God loved in such ruin? Have any of you ever seen the quotes from Mark Twain in his book, Innocence Abroad, when he ventured to the land of Palestine before it was reinstituted as the nation of Israel? What was his estimation? It was as if he was reading Deuteronomy 29 and saying, this is a wasteland full of disease and nothing grows. God judged the nation for their sins. God judged his special people because of their sins. God removed them from the land which he promised to give them forever, and he will give it to them forever, but he removed them from their land. What will he do to other nations? Then men will say, because they forsook, the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. This was the reason they were cast out of their land. Reading Romans 1.28, we get particularly vividly in our minds, the nation of Israel. Now this has a much broader scope than just the nation of Israel, but they fit this pattern, and we ought to ask, do we fit this pattern as well? The book of Romans was written directly to us as the church. We ought to be asking ourselves these questions as well. How are we acting in our nation? Paul writes, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Now mind here in the dispensation of grace, Paul writes, worthy of death. Not that those must be executed as if he had written under the law would be the case. But they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now I'm just realizing I probably should have whited out this girl's face, but she posted it online. She writes, I am an abortion doula because I believe God calls me as a Christian to support all people and help destigmatize abortion. What church has she been going to? Are we, as God's representatives in this nation, doing an adequate job of bringing up the next generation? Are we doing an adequate job of teaching our children God's heart for life? Or are we syncretizing with the culture? Are we getting, as Hosea would say, soft and squishy on one side and burnt on the other, like an unturned piece of bread? Are we hardened towards God and soft towards the culture? So that when the culture says, God is backwards, we say, oh, maybe he is. Or when the culture says, God is wrong, we say, no, because God's word is always right. God's word is the very foundation of the promise of life that I have. And if I can't trust what God says about my life, how can I trust what God says about any life? The world says eugenics is the most adequate and thorough avenue to the solution of racial, political, and social problems. Death is the answer. This is Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She also gave many speeches to Klan members at Klan meetings and is recorded as saying things such as, we ought not to let it be widely known that we are seeking the eradication of the African population in America. She relates people as a garden. And she says we ought to get rid of the weeds. How does she say we ought to do that? By putting a disproportionate number of abortion clinics in black communities. This is the foundation of Planned Parenthood. Once again, this should chill us to the bones. This 
organization is nationally funded. We're careful about where our money goes as individuals. Are we careful about where our money goes as a nation? What are we promoting? We want to know where race relations became skewed. I'd say start here. Rather, we ought to be promoting biblical institutions. Institutions that not only protect life, but understand why they protect life. And understand that protecting life isn't a political argument. It's not a biological argument. It's not a political or biological issue. It's a gospel issue. So we have here from CareNet. Only through the transformation of their hearts and minds can mothers and fathers become disciples of Jesus Christ instead of disciples of the culture that contributed to their need for our help in the first place. Only as transformed disciples of Jesus Christ can the cycle of abortion be broken in their lives. I want to talk about one more, martyrdom. God cares for each life taken, from Abel to the very last martyr of the tribulation. And so in Revelation, we see that those souls who are gathered together under the altar, at the very beginning, of the tribulation. They say, or John writes rather, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Now if there's something to die for, it's that. If there is something worth losing our lives over, it's God's word. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so we can harmonize with them for every single death and say, How long, O Lord? We're about to start a sermon series on the problem of pain and suffering in the world. What's God doing about it? Well, he does care. Where he is gracious, he is also just. And God is bringing about the just recompense for every single life taken from Abel on forward. And here we see that God not only has a large plan, for the consummation of the ages where justice will be brought. But even during this small seven-year period of history, God has an individual plan of bringing about justice for those martyrs in the tribulation. So that when we get to Revelation chapter 14, we see them answered directly. Chapter 6 of Revelation is not the only time that they ask, How long, O Lord? 
In fact, in, I believe it's chapter 10 or chapter 11, he says, just a little while longer. But then we get to the climax of this first part of the tribulation, leading up towards the Battle of Armageddon, which happens in multiple stages. And the very first is bringing justice for the martyrs who have been executed under the one world nation, under the false Christ. Revelation 14 is naturally followed by Revelation 15, 16, 17, and 18, which all deal with this final campaign of Armageddon. The first stage is the answer to these martyrs' question. How long, O Lord? Because we read in Revelation 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on that cloud was one like a son of man. This is an address for Jesus Christ. One like a son of man, sitting on a cloud, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Jesus Christ follows the will of the Lord, and that is how an angel is able to command him. Because both the angel and the Lord himself are servants of God. Jesus Christ, being God, came to this earth to serve the will of God, not himself, he says. And so, in this tribulation period, Jesus Christ himself will be the one who brings justice to the lives taken. So when we say, how long, O Lord, we have an eye towards the future. Whereas when the world says, God is the problem of pain, why doesn't he take care of it? We say, he will. Be careful what you wish for. Because if he took care of this today, this is what it would look like. Because this is what is merited. So you ought to ask them, do you prefer his grace or do you prefer his justice today? Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the answer to the question that the martyrs raise in chapter 6. How long, O Lord? Don't know why my pictures are disappearing. Anyways, God will judge. God cares about life. God protects life. God created life. God will avenge life taken. And he is storing up judgment for the last day. And we ought to be thankful for that. Though it is hard to live in a world plagued with sin, death, murder, it gives us the opportunity to share the light of Christ with others, to share life with others from the source that we have found it. Because we see that the Lord being sovereign will return, and his return will be different from the first time he came. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we see, I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Isn't it John chapter 3, verse 18 that says, Jesus Christ did not come to judge the world, but that through him we might have life? His first advent and his second advent have different purposes. His second advent is for the purpose of judgment. It is for the purpose of establishing a perfect nation under a perfect king. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He is treading the battlefields of Armageddon at his return. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, notice our robes are not stained in blood, but his are. White and clean were following him on horses. We will be present for this battle. But thanks be to God, we're coming behind him. And he is not coming at us not by any merit of our own, but because we have put our trust in him, because we have believed the word of God, because we know that his blood saves us and nothing that we bring can save ourselves. John continues, for his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Notice as well, nations, the Antichrist will have a one world government, but not every nation comes under that government. There is human war between nations at the time of the Lord's return. Part of Armageddon is the nations of the East that rise up against the Antichrist. Jesus Christ returns to this earth to be the final judge. While life is so threatened that it comes close to extinction, Jesus Christ returns and treads the winepress of God so that he might save life. There will be mortals on this earth when he comes to rescue them. It will not only be resurrected church saints and Old Testament saints, but there will be mortals left on this earth when Christ comes because he cuts those days short. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So when we look at the book of Revelation and we say that's brutal, we need to look at the 65 books that come before it and say, why is this merited? It should come as no surprise when we put Revelation in its context as the final consummation for all evil on this earth. In Revelation 19, 
verse 17. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and free men and slaves and small and great. This is a wide variety of people. And it's not drawn on the line of, were you politically pro-life or pro-choice? What is it drawn on the line of? Was your salvation found in Christ? So that this morning, I don't want to convince unbelievers to go out and be pro-life. I want to convince unbelievers to find life in Christ. And that should be all of our goals. When we're encountering people in our nation, the remedy for the plague of abortion is not political. It's not scientific. It's the gospel. It is not our job to turn square pegs into round pegs. Our job is to share the word of God so that the spirit might turn square pegs into round pegs. Because Jesus Christ has already paid the full price so that everyone lost because of unbelief is lost unnecessarily. And that should break our hearts just as much as murder, suicide, abortion. Every lost soul should break our hearts. Hebrews 9.27 inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. When Christ returns, it is not the pro-lifers that go to heaven and the pro-choicers that go to hell. That girl whose picture I showed you, who said she's a, an abortion doula, you will likely be standing next to her on the Day of Judgment. But how terrible for her on the Day of Judgment, where she stands before the throne of Jesus Christ and gives an answer for her works. What will she say? But also, the people who we've had an opportunity to reach for Christ, but where we spent our time on political arguments. And when we come behind Jesus Christ, will we see their face in the crowd? Or will we see their face looking back at us with Jesus Christ coming for their judgment? Even if we convince them politically to agree with us, 
what have we done? We have sent a pro-life advocate to hell. We have to focus on the gospel. We have to keep our minds, keep our hearts, and keep our eyes set on Jesus Christ. We have to remember that we are in this world, but not of it. That we, like Israel, are sojourners. That this is not our home. But we have a mission here. And our mission is not to make this place more cozy for ourselves, but to get as many people as we can to the new heavens and the new earth. We don't want to forsake this world while we are still here. But we want to know how we fix it. And that is by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. But notice as well that this is a guarantee that that enemy will be abolished. So the solution on both ends, whether a Christian or not, when it comes to the sanctity of life, is to have God's mind about it. And the only way to have God's mind about it is to have God's spirit The only way to have God's spirit is to be saved. So that there is absolutely no point in getting into an abortion argument before you get into a gospel argument. Argument may not even be the best word for that. Until you have exhausted your efforts in sharing God's word, There is no point striving for a political argument. And keep in mind as well, this isn't even our efforts. Because when we engage with others when sharing the gospel, it's the Spirit who works through us. It's not our message we're sharing. It's God's. And we get to be a part of that. So in 1 Corinthians 2 we see how Paul acted when he came to a new culture. And the Greek culture was not unlike our own. It was not unlike the culture that the Israelites were displacing. But rather than coming in and displacing them, he was coming in as a social change agent. But how was he changing the social fabric? Was he coming in as a social justice warrior? Or was he preaching the pure word of God? He says, When I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I guarantee you there are many more arguments Paul could have had. Paul could have tried to fix a lot of different things in their cultures on his own strength. But what did he understand? That the Holy Spirit is the only hope these people have for life to come and life more abundantly now. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now we, remember he is speaking to his brothers in Christ, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. These are two different kinds of people, the spiritual man and the natural man. Paul goes on, and he's going to talk about the carnal man. This is the spiritually born again, but worldly-minded Christian who has all access to the spirit that we have, but chooses to walk in the ways of the world instead. But I want to finish with this verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. Paul writes, but he who is spiritual, and that is what we seek to be, not carnal. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We think his thoughts after him. So that we might say, spend your time and effort saving souls. The best way to make someone understand the sanctity of life is to introduce them to the maker and sustainer of life. So to wrap up our main point, one more time, a little elaborated. Protection of life is not first a political, biological, or philosophical problem. It is a spiritual problem. We cannot wrestle with the hearts the way the Spirit will. So let him make square pegs round. Let's pray. Father God, we do seek to have your heart on all matters of life. We seek to think your thoughts after you. I pray that we all go home and wrestle with your word so that we might come to know you better, the love you have for us, and the sanctity of human life that you have instilled into the fabric of society. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.